Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Politics with Amy Walter was taped on Friday morning, May 29th. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. It's good to have you with us. We're in the middle of a pandemic that has cost more than 100,000 Americans their lives. The streets of Minneapolis are filled with anger over the death of a black man in police custody, and protests are spreading across the country. It feels as if we're living out the W.B. Yeats poem, The Second Coming, a poem written 100 years ago when the world also felt like it was coming apart, torn by war and violence, and a flu pandemic. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. But it also feels like we're trapped in suspended animation. We haven't left our immediate communities in months. We're losing track of days and even months. There's an incredible sameness to our lives. Of course, one of the things that continues on is politics. More importantly, an election that is now just six months away. Campaigning, like everything else in our world, now looks different. Many of the issues and debates we were watching in early January haven't gone away. They're just no longer getting the kind of attention they did pre-pandemic. And one of those lingering questions is about democratic unity. While the democratic field and voters coalesce quickly behind Joe Biden post-South Carolina primary, younger voters are showing little enthusiasm for the former vice president. And then there's a question of the political revolution promised by Bernie Sanders and his supporters. Was this a revolution denied? or just delayed. Joining me to discuss all of this are Dave Weigel, national political reporter at The Washington Post, Maya King, campaign 2020 reporting fellow for Politico, and Joel Payne, former aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, and a CBS News political contributor. Thank you all for joining me. Before we get to the Democratic primary, let's just talk about what's happening in Minneapolis. And we have another night of protest erupting in the wake of a black man, George Floyd, dying in police custody. I want to get thoughts on this from all of you. And Joel, I'd like to start with you. What we have been witnessing in Minneapolis is really um, jarring. And it's it's going to be very compelling to see how this settles onto uh, the minds of voters. You know, obviously, I look at this through, through a political lens, but I also look through a humanity lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am an African-American man. And this is fundamentally disturbing. And I think what we're probably witnessing is somewhat of a sea change in policing and in how policing is viewed. Um, I'm not suggesting that overnight that police tactics are going to change, but I am suggesting that the way we analyze police tactics are going to change. Um, we witnessed a CNN reporter be arrested on live TV, being treated differently than uh, colleagues who are white. The, this reporter was African-American. Um, we have no idea how that is going to impact the debate. Um, I have an idea, but we, we haven't seen that play out. Um, I think also we're, we're going to watch this impact the political ecosystem. Um, you know, President Trump um, recently tweeted about this and and Twitter pulled that down. So that is stoking the fire about um, social media and and, and how the president engages there. Um, We're gonna witness this impact the 2020 uh, presidential race on the other side. Amy Klobuchar, one of the leading contenders for the vice president uh, nomination on the democratic side um, is very much a part of this story in Minneapolis. Um, She's a former prosecutor there in Hennepin County where a lot of this is happening and her inaction related to the officers involved in the George Floyd murder um, is already playing a major part in the discussion. So there are a lot of things churning um, and it will be really interesting to see how this chaotic 24 to 48 hour period will impact um, how voters are thinking about this, how the public thinks about this and and just how um, we view policing and, and whether or not this will be um, the type of law and order election that we may often see in moments like this. I know in the past we may have seen this 
lean in the favor of conservatives who are more in favor of law and order. I think we might be in a moment now where um, this is going to really um, go the other way. So lot to lot the process here, Amy. Hmm. Maya, I'd love for you to follow up on, on what Joel said. And also, I just want to read the tweet that, that Joel referred to from uh, from Donald Trump, where he talks about, he said, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd. And then he ends his tweet saying, any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Yeah, that's um, a very it's that's a very alarming um, statement to make, particularly, I think, to black Americans who are trying to reckon with um, really how we make sense of, of violence and, and what people are saying about it. Um, I think that this also plays into um, a larger storyline just about how racial politics are deeply ingrained in American politics. So we have the events in Minneapolis um, against the backdrop of the coronavirus, which we know has a disproportionate impact on African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also, in addition to the George Floyd uh, protests, there are protests for Breonna Taylor, who was killed a few weeks ago, and Ahmaud Arbery, who was also killed. And these are these are all situations that I think are feeding into um, a larger narrative and an, and almost a referendum on race in America that mm-hmm. will only continue to unfold uh, this summer and heading into November. And I think President Trump has made it very clear uh, where he falls on on these protests and on this situation, which is his he's very um, unafraid to, to to use violence uh, to suppress a lot of these movements. Um, and I think it'll be interesting now to to hear what um, the Democratic, the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, has to say, considering the fact that he does have an overwhelming majority of support from African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And he will need them uh, to come out and vote in November. But if, if this continues and, and people feel unsafe doing so, um, I, I mean, I think he needs to also have a plan in place to at least address these concerns. Dave, what about you? What are you thinking about as you're watching this unfold? Well, just through nature, what I cover, I, I try to I end up looking through a political lens mm-hmm. for these sorts of stories, looking at the reporters covering it, the people living through it and hoping they're safe, but but imagining how this plays politically because, uh, well, frankly, I, we know uh, in retrospect that the, the Trump campaign for in 2016 uh, benefited from impressions of things getting out of control. It, uh, the, in 2016, uh, the, when he was running in the Illinois primary, Donald Trump was going to have a rally in Chicago at a university, kind of a really suboptimal site for uh, any Republican candidate to, to rally, but especially him. It was canceled, not because of uh, violent rioting, but because of just protesters making the space uh, uh, unusable, unsafe. Uh, and the campaign of Ted Cruz, who was trying to catch up and beat him in a couple states that on that primary day, uh, their polling found that Republican voters responded to Trump. They, they, were, they moved towards him because they saw... Mm-hmm. The, the appearance of unrest and thought he could he could solve it. Now, this was when Donald Trump was a candidate, and who, when he was a candidate with a very active Twitter account, everything was Barack Obama's fault. He's not been in the position, actually, of governing during any kind of unrest. Uh, he has had instead kind of a, I think, a very uh, surface approach to winning over black voters just by saying, well, there's, there are problems. There's problems like mass incarceration, but that was Joe Biden's fault because of the crime bill, and I fixed it with the First Step Act. And we saw in the last uh, 24 hours a return to the Trump of the campaign, just kind of encouraging. You saw that uh, the, the the shooting. We had hard to put that in any other context except uh, rooting for people to take back order by any means necessary. He's taken a, an approach that you didn't see when... Um, in other periods, when there was unrest, you'd really see people in charge, uh, emphas- uh, passing the buck as he does here. I mean, he kind of mentions Governor Waltz. He mentions the mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, his mode is not to take responsibility and calm things down, and he has been benefited from that when he's not in a position of power. We don't know what it's like when he is. We we can go back to the Obama years and the unrest that happened when uh, in cities that. Barack Obama's administration tried to calm down, said the DOJ mm-hmm. to calm down. This is not an administration that has experience doing that. So uh, I haven't come up with a political answer, but looking at how this, this runs, I mean, I wouldn't say 
unique situation. There have been other presidents, I think, who try to exploit some social division. But a new situation for this president of exactly the kind of situation he was blaming on kind of weak liberal governance erupting. uh, And his response so far has has not been to calm things down. Well, I, uh, I think we have so much still to unpack in this. And, and as you all pointed out, this is still an evolving story. And I think it is going to be a part of the campaign. And another part of the campaign, clearly, is the question about sort of Democrats y- uniting behind their nominee. And Joel, I want to go back to you and talk about this question that we've been hearing from many, um, many folks, especially those within Democratic circles for a while now, which is that Joe Biden has a young voter problem, specifically a younger voter of color problem. They are simply not enthusiastic about his candidacy, and they may not turn out to vote. Amy, I think um, the issue you raise here is a fair one about Biden and um, where his base of support is and, and where some of the gaps in, in that support might exist around young voters. But here's what's interesting, particularly when you think about the Democratic Party right now heading into the 2020 election vis-a-vis the 2016 election. Joe Biden has two advantages that Hillary Clinton did not have, time and unity. He had time to mend fences rhetorically and literally within the party he got people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, the AOCs of the world, uh, etc., on board. He got the left flank of his party on board behind his candidacy early. Um, he's got a, a convention that's been pushed back a bit. And you're, you're facing a, a Democratic Party that is uh, on the same page in a way that really we didn't see in 2016. Now, we know that President Trump is going to look for wedge issues um, to to divide democratic unity but you know this is a difference in the in in the democrats that trump will be facing this time versus what he faced in 2016 this is a a relatively united democratic party and we just talked about these incidents in minnesota and, and and obviously what happened in georgia and i think how this may impact that young voter conundrum that you referred to is now you have an issue that will potentially engage some of those younger voters in a way Uh that didn't exist before. The other issue we hear a lot about, Maya, is the vice presidential pick. And we know, because this is how things always work, Joe Biden's getting a lot of advice from a lot of different circles. One tells him, you got to go with a Midwestern pick. That's the key to winning this election. Go with an Amy Klobuchar, go with a Gretchen Whitmer. And then there's another group of Democrats who say, you absolutely have to pick a woman of color. They are the backbone of the Democratic Party. And uh, to, to Joel's previous point, um, especially at a moment where we are seeing what's happening in Minneapolis and around the country, the, the discussion about race has, has now taken um, uh, you know, e- even more prominence in American politics. In my view, the biggest uh, task that that Joe Biden has to has to do now is to close a bit of an enthusiasm gap. And through his vice presidential pick, I think he has a number um, a, a number of options on how to do that. Whether it's um, you know making sure that Midwestern voters don't feel like they live in quote flyover country and that they're actually seen um, through a pick like Amy Klobuchar, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, or that African-Americans and voters of color in other communities actually feel like they're being um, rewarded or, for for lack of a better word, um, you know, seen and heard for all of the years that they've spent now um, organizing and supporting the the Democratic Party, that a a woman of color as vice president um, is not only a smart pick, but a pick that, that recognizes that hard work. Um, Politico has reported that um, Elizabeth Warren is a really popular pick, including mm. among a plurality um, of African-American voters. And, of course, through her, um, potentially she she could close the gap with a number of progressives who are who are still on the fence about Joe Biden. It wasn't all that long ago that the talk was all about AOC, the ascendancy of the squad and liberal Democrats 
wasn't that long ago that Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee. Here we are, obviously, it's Joe Biden as the nominee, and many of the progressive candidates who were trying to unseat more moderate Democrats have failed. There's, there doesn't seem to be a sort of Tea Party-like movement on the left, at least at the congressional level. So can you get to what's, what's going on with the Democratic Party and the, especially the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Funny enough, I think I end up being more optimistic on the chances of the, of, of the party's left winning than the left often is. I'm not rooting for one side or the other. I just see a lot of uh, gains they've made that are dismissed by some people on the left who, as you were kind of setting it up, posited 2020 as this all or nothing election where Bernie Sanders would capitalize on his on his gains from four years ago and take over the party or whether the you know capital E establishment would would squash him and and it, it was a little more complicated I, I think had the party not been moving left since 2016 and in big important ways I mean Joe Biden's supported the $15 minimum wage for, for five years uh, he's walked away from a lot of his policies from the 80s and 90s had he not done that had there not been had it been bernie sanders versus hillary clinton's policies from last time might have gone a little bit differently i think the same thing in some house races uh so the left has made gains in in terms of just what gets passed in the house even uh what you have fairly comfortable suburban democrats voting for uh but they stop short of uh, i'd say basically things that would change the economy, change uh, the government benefits in a way that affects people who are already kind of comfortable. Uh, the, the Medicare for all is a great example. And that really did fall uh, at the hurdles in this election. I mean, we've seen that there's just not an electorate out there that's willing to throw out uh, some Democrats who are not all there on replacing health care with single payer w- with uh, Democrats who are. There's just that's just not happening. Uh, the problem for some of these insurgents is they're making a uh, really ambitious argument to throw out uh, an incumbent with experience. And they're doing it in a period when the the, the the stimulus bill, the CARES Act that was passed is fairly popular, uh, where there's not much of a mood to throw out Nancy Pelosi's party, where Pelosi has about 75 percent approval with Democrats or higher. Uh, Joe Biden's at 80 percent. There's just not the same. We need something to change and the people in power aren't fixing it attitude among Democrats as there was. Joel, what do you think about that, this idea that, you know, Democrats right now want stability, their fo- their number one focus is getting Trump out of office. But what happens if they succeed? Is it like the dog that catches the car? This impacts every part of the Democratic base. So you look at women voters, They have been eager to get Donald Trump out literally within moments of him being inaugurated. African-American voters see the Trump presidency as an existential crisis. And even the pick of Joe Biden demonstrates that Democrats are focused on beating Donald Trump, even if if it comes at the expense of, say, their ideal candidate or their ideal agenda. That's all that matters. What's interesting to me is we're in this era of coronavirus, of COVID-19, and Democrats have have kind of gone to progressive ideas as a public policy solve, as a remedy. I mean, look at and, and, and it's by the way, it's not just Democrats. It's some of their Republican colleagues. Look at uh, the things that Congress passed in CARES and and the things that Nancy Pelosi's trying to pass in Heroes. A lot of these are ideas that you would hear from Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren or, or AOC. Um, their, their forerunners are from kind of progressive godfathers and godmothers on the campaign trail, um, direct cash payments, um, very ideas that sound, dare I say, socialist. And so it's interesting that that this moment has happened about six months after the moment when it did happen. If, if coronavirus happened last fall, it could have very much impacted the Democratic race. Hmm. But what ended up happening was Joe Biden won. But progressive ideas won. It, it, it was a split decision. Bernie Sanders' ideas won, but Joe Biden's candidacy won. Um, that's a that's a pretty fascinating uh, dynamic that we saw emerge. All right, Maya, I want to um, end here with you. You've been doing a lot of reporting from North Carolina and about North Carolina. It's the issue of the conventions, and there's been back and forth between the president and 
the Democratic governor of the state about whether we're going to see a convention in Charlotte. I want you to give us an update on what you've been um, seeing and, and hearing about there. And also just this question, if you can get into this for a, just a moment about what, what it means to have an election year where we may not have traditional conventions. In fact, it seems more likely than not they aren't going to look like the conventions we're used to. Sure. Um, I think there's, like you like you pointed out, some real back and forth now between um, Republican top brass and the Democratic-led um, government in, in North Carolina. Um, and last night, uh, Ronna McDaniel and Marsha Kelly, the CEO and chairwoman um, of the RNC, sent, an e- or sent a letter to uh, Governor Cooper and Mandy Cohen, who's um, North Carolina's Health and Human Services Secretary, with a few, um, you know, preliminary protocol measures that they say they plan to implement um, during the RNC this summer, including widespread sanitizing stations, um, a number of uh, daily health checks, daily temperature checks. And it kind of scratches the surface, but doesn't exactly get at how they plan to do this and whether or not they still plan to move forward with a 50,000 person convention. And I think to get at uh, your second question, it really comes down to how big of a show Republicans want. Uh, President Trump has said repeatedly that he is very interested in seeing this move forward um, in grand fashion because this really is, in in many ways, his pep rally and a a last-ditch energy boost uh, for Republicans and for him to get people more excited about, of course, uh, reelecting him for four more years. And uh, Democrats have taken more of a, um, a careful approach and are already floating online options or a giant social distanced one day convention um, in, a, in a giant convention center in Milwaukee. Um, and I think really what this gets at is, of course, you know, conventions are are important and they're 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 necessary, of course, to nominate uh, the party's nominee. But that's really the only piece of business that gets done at these conventions, or I guess the most important piece of business. And so um, I think that both parties are now having to reckon with how they make sure that gets done while also um, you know, putting forth some kind of a show of, uh, of excitement and strength um, on the part of the party. So as I mentioned before, President Trump is very interested in making this the largest pep rally um, ever. And Democrats, mm-hmm. I think, are also interested in making sure that people are excited about Biden and, and introducing him or, or putting him up, propping him up um, on a national stage while also making sure that everyone who attends is safe and not making the convention just kind of look like a giant Zoom call. Uh, There are a number of different options that have been floated on both sides, uh, though no one, it seems, has really come down uh, on the Democratic side or or the Republican side on exactly what a pandemic-era convention will really look like. Amy, can I I jump in really quickly, just a a really quick thought here. what you can't lose in, in the, in, you know, for the forest, for the trees here with these conventions is what is happening with the states where these conventions are being held? Remember, right. Donald Trump needs North Carolina. So as much as the convention itself is important, the opportunity to be on the ground and organize and to use this as a, you know, three, four day voter registration drive, essentially in North Carolina cannot be understated. The same for Democrats in Wisconsin. These, in, these convention cities are not picked by accident. And so the macro politics of the conventions, but the micro politics of those states, the interplay there is something not to, to lose sight of in this as well. Jill Payne is a former aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and CBS News political contributor. He also recently launched a podcast called Here Comes the Pain. Dave Weigel is national political reporter for The Washington Post, and Maya King is a campaign 2020 reporting fellow at Politico. Well, it wouldn't be a full discussion about the future of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party without a conversation with a progressive candidate. Jamal Bowman is hoping to win over voters in the Bronx and parts of Westchester in New York's 16th congressional district. He's challenging Democrat Elliot Engel in a primary where he's positioning himself as a left-wing progressive. Over the last 20 years, I've mentored hundreds of kids and supported parents who had to make the difficult choice between putting food on the table, going to the doctor, and paying their rent. 
all while our government continues to ignore them. Jamal spent most of his career as an educator and principal where he witnessed firsthand the impact that systemic inequality and poverty had on the lives of his students. You know, I've been in education for 20 years and, you know, those experiences give you a real intimate understanding of the impact of policy on the lives of the kids that you serve. You know, throughout my career, I've served uh, students from Title I schools and Title I communities, which, to say differently, are kids that come from poverty. Uh, and poverty impacts the lives of our kids, not just within our schools, but beyond our schools. Uh, and for me, a tipping point uh, came in 2017, 2018, when 34 children died within the K-12 school system in the Bronx and 17 died via suicide. And right in our district, one young girl, a ninth grader, uh, jumped off a building in Co-op City after she was being bullied in school. And another high school student in New Rochelle uh, murdered another uh, a girl in, in, in her school uh, over an argument during lunch. And again, as a 20-year educator, you understand the connection between you know, trauma, poverty, and bad policy. And that's when I decided, you know, thinking about, when I started thinking about a run for office. And when I looked at Elliot Engel and I looked at his record and I started talking to people about him, the word I continued to hear was absent. And Elliot Engel has been in office for 31 years and he's lived in Maryland for 27 of those years. And he's claimed his home in Maryland as his primary residence for over a decade and had to be forced to stop doing that. So he is not present. He is not engaged. He cannot feel our pain and what we're really going through in this district. And that's why many have told us it's time for a change. You probably hear this a lot, but I'm sure there there are others who have made the comparison between the kind of campaign you're running, even the video and the images that you're using of you getting on to public transportation, walking around the neighborhood, making that comparison to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Did you intend to do that? And do you look at her campaign in 2018 as sort of a blueprint for what you're doing? Well, she's an incredible inspiration uh, just because of her, her fierce leadership her speaking truth to power. Uh, but I think what, what drives both of us is how we center those who are most vulnerable in our communities and we seek to uplift their voices and their struggles, right? The, the working class is what drives America and the working class should be centered in our political decision-making. So this district is uh, one of the most unequal economic districts in the country. We have some of the highest uh, real estate prices in the in the country, and we also have the highest number of WIC, WIC recipients of any congressional district in the country, right? So that, that's a reality that exists within this district. And, you know, the images that you see in the video are, they represent not just the part of the district that's ignored, but they represent where I work and they represent where I grew up. So I'm running and fighting for the community that I grew up in and the community that I've served for my entire life. So what Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has done and many others is they're centering the working class. They're centering undocumented immigrants. They're centering children with special needs, our seniors, uh, those who are disabled. We have to center those who have been historically oppressed. That's the only way to deal with the institutional racism, sexism, and classism that continues to drive our political infrastructure. You know, after her win in 2018 and then watching Bernie Sanders' success in 2020, uh, especially early on, there was a lot of talk that there would be a lot of candidates like Jamal Bowman, that there would be a number of these progressive, maybe first-time candidates who are going to come and challenge entrenched incumbents. And that hasn't really happened. Um, what, what do you think's going on? I don't know if, that, if I agree with that hasn't really happened. I mean, I see, 
you know, growth in progressive challengers, you know, across the country. You know, you have organizations, not just the Justice Democrats, but Brand New Congress, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, and other organizations who are pushing the envelope. Maybe not always at a congressional level, but, you know, state houses matter as well. Um, city council matters as well. You know, um, you know, county boards, you know, school boards, they all matter. And I can't tell you the number of candidates across the country who have reached out and said that they were inspired by my campaign and that's why they're running for office. So it may not be the immediate explosion uh, that many had predicted, but there is growth, right? And in and, and a race like mine, uh, if that can inspire others, great. But this is also not just about running for office. There are many other things you can do to be a transformative agent of change uh, in our democracy and in saving our democracy from the wealthy elite. So you could support a campaign. You can volunteer in your in your in your local community and be part of a mutual aid network. You could become a teacher or nurse or someone fighting for environmental justice and, and, and make transformative change from the inside out, similar to what we tried to do when I founded my school in 2009. Uh, so there's a lot of, what I what I sense and what I feel is, is just grassroots energy growing across the country. And that's why even during the pandemic over the last two months, we've had, uh, we've seen a record number in our fundraising in terms of contributions and amount because people are even more excited about change at this moment than any other before. So even during a pandemic, you're saying it hasn't taken attention away from your campaign. In fact, it's no, gotten you the, more contributions. God, it's gotten me more contributions. And I think the pandemic has revealed to many what many of us already knew was in place, the the rampant economic and racial inequality, the the dearth of resources in our healthcare system, and understanding how environmental injustice, healthcare, jobs, and education are interconnected. It's revealed that for people who maybe didn't see the connections before. For people like me and our campaign, we knew the connections were there uh, prior to the pandemic. But now it's time to rebuild a rebuild the country in the image of progressive values. We need a green stimulus package to build a Green New Deal economy that ends our dependence on fossil fuels and gets the million, tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs back to work. We need to grow our care economy and hire more teachers, more early child care providers, more long-term care providers, and more nurses to make sure we we deal with the achievement gap that is going to come as a result of this pandemic. We have a lot of work to do to build a country rooted in our democracy going forward that wasn't there prior to this pandemic. It's not about going back to what we had. It's about building something that's better for the future. Well, Jamal Bowman, I, I thank you for coming and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day and please be safe. Jamal Bowman is a candidate in the Democratic primary for New York's 16th Congressional District. He's a former middle school principal. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Now, harder than ever, we must act up, fight back, fight AIDS. Plague. We are in the middle of a plague. And you behave like this. Plague. 40 million infected people is a plague. And Larry Kramer. As you can probably tell, he was a fighter. He did not mince words. He was a playwright and a gay rights activist, but his demand for attention and resources to fight HIV AIDS made him a giant. There was medicine before and medicine after, Larry. And that's another voice you might recognize. Dr. Anthony Fauci, 
the lead authority on infectious disease in the U.S. and part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. In the 1980s, Fauci was researching a different infectious disease that was wreaking havoc on the gay community. And that's where he first crossed paths with Larry Kramer. He transformed the way the community interacts, not only with the scientific community, the regulatory community, uh, and the federal government, when the federal government is involved in the research and intervention of a particular disease. He did it in a way that was unprecedented. Uh, There wasn't much attention paid, uh, and I think that was inappropriate because the government at the time could have used the bully pulpit to really bring attention to something that was an emerging catastrophe, particularly for the gay community. Larry sensed that and used his techniques, which were very unusual and in to some respects frightening to people. He scared the hell out of the scientific community as well as the regulatory community, not to mention federal officials because he was so iconoclastic, outrageous uh, in, in the way he would confront people to gain their attention. That shook the cages of the medical, regulatory, and government community. So that's what I meant when I said nothing was ever the same after that because it became clear that you have to get involved in your decision-making, the people who are going to be impacted by your decision-making. And it seems like that's a no-brainer now. But back then, scientists were very rigid and essentially inflexible in realizing that people who are the ones that are going to be impacted by what you're doing should have a say both in the design of a clinical trial and the implementation of a clinical trial. And back then it was thought, don't bother us, we're the scientists, we're the physicians, we're the regulators, we'll tell you what's good for you, which almost seems laughable now retrospectively, but back then that's the way it was. Larry changed that. Is there another disease that came afterward that became, to your point, one in the after Larry issue where you said, okay, we learned from him. We need to involve the people who are afflicted by this in this process, bring them to the table. You know, I think every outbreak with few exceptions, and I think COVID is an exception because COVID afflicts anybody and everybody. But other outbreaks sometimes are selective for certain people, certain regions, certain, like for example, when we had Zika, remember Zika, if you don't have Mm -hmm. mosquitoes around, you don't have to worry about Zika, but that's not the way with COVID because with COVID, it doesn't matter where you are. And then there was Ebola, uh, you know, the understanding of what it meant for the people in the developing world in West Africa with the big outbreak there and then in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. It's the understanding of that you've got to engage the community. Because I can remember back when we were doing Ebola and I was deeply involved with the response to Ebola, that we had to understand the special needs of people, for example, burying them. They would not want you to essentially deal with their dead family members in a way that you felt was safe because it was against their tradition. And unless you understood the tradition, you really had a hard time keeping the community safe. It has different levels of approach, but it's always a sensitivity to the needs of the involved people, your partners with them. It isn't the physician is up in some pedestal The regulators are up in some pedestal, and then the afflicted people are somewhere down below. We're partners in what we do, and that's the point that Larry was making. And it's very interesting, because to really understand Larry, Larry was very confrontative, theatrical, and I use the word outrageous, because he was. I loved him. I loved him like a brother, and I still do, that he's gone. And we loved each other. But he was completely outrageous. But he didn't get into the fine granular details of now that I've got people's attention, how do I articulate what the needs are? That wasn't his forte. What he did do 
which complemented the effectiveness of his outrageous theatrical behavior was that he mentored and brought under his wing a group of young activists from the original ACT UP group who were very academic, very serious, very scholarly. And they got into what it meant to really get involved in being part of the research agenda and planning the clinical trials to make sure that they're user-friendly. Well, that's the other remarkable part of your story, Dr. Fauci, is the fact that he called you a murderer, you're an incompetent idiot, and now, and you say, but we're brothers, we're like brothers, we were best friends. How, how does that happen? When he was doing that, and I, and I did this with other activists in addition to Larry, when they are being as outrageous and as confrontative as that, that is a reflection of the pain they're feeling and the frustration that they're meeting. And I got that pretty quickly. So I adapted, uh, adopted uh, kind of a philosophy with them that this isn't anything personal with me. To them, it's strictly business. I'm a public figure. And it isn't Tony Fauci, the person who they ultimately got to know. It was this public figure. Um, so I put that aside and said, I'm not going to get annoyed or angry or hurt. I was shocked the first time. I mean, when you're a physician and you've trained all your life to help people, and then somebody puts on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner Sunday magazine section that you're an incompetent idiot and a murderer, that certainly shocks you and gets your attention. But once I got past that, I didn't take it personally. I started to listen to try and understand what he was trying to do was to get the attention of someone who would listen to him. And I went from an adversary to an acquaintance, to a casual friend, to a really good friend, to a deep, deep friendship and affection over a period of decades. And that's- Well, and you helped him with his liver disease. I mean, you were the, his doctor. Uh, I was, I was. I mean, he had a primary physician who was quite good, but he was getting into trouble because he had chronic hepatitis B in addition to HIV infection. And he was not doing very well at all. We would, you know, either have dinner or I'd go up there. We'd be on the phone a lot. We, we, we had hundreds of phone calls together, several dinners and a lot of visits. And there was a period of time where he just didn't sound right. He, he sounded like he was sinking. And I said, Larry, you know, I don't like the way you sound. And he says, well, my physicians are perplexed. They don't know what's going on. I seem to be, you know, going downhill. I said, well, let me bring you down to the NIH here in Bethesda and, and let me take a look at you. You know, I'll, I'll be a consultant. I'll be a physician for a month. So we brought him down and it was clear that he needed a liver transplant. So we made the arrangements with the University of Pittsburgh for him to get a liver transplant. It was kind of historic because then there was a big reluctancy to transplant livers into people with HIV infection. He was one of the first ones. It was not only life-saving, it gave him a significant number of additional years. And then when he went back, he continued his work, you know, his books and his plays and all the other things he did. Thinking about where we are today, I mean, you're able now all these years later, to look back at that era during the height of the AIDS crisis, your relationship with Larry Kramer. Now, thinking forward for what we may learn about this pandemic that we're in, is is there something right now that you think, you know, I see already where we're going to be focused on some of the blind spots that we have had in dealing with a pandemic of this type? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look back with HIV, it took a while to get a full grasp of what the variable manifestations are, what the precise mechanisms of pathogenesis are. And we learned you have to be humble. Uh, you know, as much experience that you have, and I've had at that time, I had already been at the NIH for nine years 
working rather successfully in other diseases when HIV came along in 1981. Of course, I came back from my medical training in New York in 1972, and nine years later we had HIV. I went, you think you're pretty good, you think you know medicine pretty well, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with a disease that puzzles you and that you realize you have a lot to learn about. So you have to have a degree of humility. That is being translated right now with COVID. I mean, COVID, we still don't fully understand so many things about this disease. We know that it's very, very efficiently transmitted from person to person. That's clear. We know that asymptomatic people transmit it. But we also know that there's a great deal of disparity in the clinical manifestations where some people do perfectly well with a few sniffles, a feeling of a stuffed nose, maybe a cough, a fever, and they're done. They're fine. Other people get the same virus, and then after a week or so, they deteriorate, they go to the intensive care unit, and then they die. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, we do know that being elderly and having comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension and obesity puts you at a higher risk of a poor outcome with COVID, but it doesn't explain why one 35-year-old person would do perfectly well and another 35-year-old person would die. It doesn't explain why some children get barely any disease and others get this post-infectious multi-system inflammatory syndrome that's still very puzzling to us. So we have a lot to learn. So going through the learning process of HIV AIDS has sort of set the stage for the learning process that we're going through with COVID. I want to go back just a moment for, um, you know, go back to the early days um, of researching AIDS back in the early 80s. Think about where we are now. I mean, it's 40 plus years. Did you think we would be farther along maybe in what we know about it, or at least to be able to have um, a vaccine for it? Yeah. Well, if you put a vaccine aside, Amy, which, you know, I, you know, I could talk to you very briefly about a vaccine. It's very problematic to get a vaccine against a pathogen that the body itself does not make a very good immune response against. And that's one of the realities, but the frustrations of HIV is that that's the reason why there are essentially no people who spontaneously clear the virus and recover some people do better than others, but nobody completely clears the virus on their own because their immune system, for reasons that we don't understand, are not capable of dealing very well with this virus. So whenever you develop a vaccine for any disease, including COVID, I could tell you right off the bat, Amy, that it's going to be infinitely easier to develop a vaccine for COVID than it is to develop a vaccine for HIV because we know that the body makes a really good response against COVID. And many, many, many people, the majority, recover and do just fine. That means that conceptually, we know that the body is capable of doing that. Whereas with HIV, we don't have that proof of concept. So we've got to do better than natural infection does if we're going to make a vaccine. So putting vaccine aside, HIV, Therapy has been an amazing success story. I mean, I spent the summer of 1981 when we brought in the first HIV-infected person to the NIH. And at the time, we didn't know it was HIV until 1983, 84. We just called it a different name, GRID, inappropriate gay-related immunodeficiency. And then we finally decided to call it AIDS, and then a few years later, we found the virus. For those years, from 1981 till we started to get good drugs, essentially, with few exceptions, every single one of my patients died. It was the darkest years of my professional career, the darkest years of my life. Prior to that, I was a physician that was developing cures for inflammatory diseases, and my life was one success story after another with a patient. And then it was one failure after another, after another, after another. So from going from that status to having drugs now, which when given in combination with one single pill, 
you can get someone who's HIV to live essentially a normal lifespan, not quite almost a normal lifespan. So those years of investment in research with HIV have really paid off when it comes to therapy. As you mentioned, we still have the challenge of developing a vaccine, but the therapy is just spectacularly effective. And the frustrations are coming from different channels this time. There's not necessarily a Larry Kramer, but there's criticism now and questions coming from everywhere at you. Did, did working at that moment and working with Larry Kramer help you to be prepared for the amount of incoming that you are going to be getting? Yeah. Actually, Amy, I'm smiling at your question. What I have said in the past, whenever I'm getting a lot of incoming, wherever it's from, from the community, from the administration, from the Congress, from whenever I get that, I say to myself, hey, this is a piece of cake. I've been through Larry Kramer. Don't worry about it. Do you think he would appreciate that? Oh, he used to laugh. I would tell him, you know, we'd have dinner sometimes and, you know, well after the peak of the HIV uh, tension. And he'd see me in Washington, you know, in Washington, as you well know, Amy, you're, you're, this is your beat. Um, you, uh, you know, you uh, understand that you get incoming and criticized no matter what you do. A day doesn't go by that you make somebody unhappy. But you've got to realize that that's the nature of the position you're in and the job that you have to do. And I used to joke with Larry, saying, Larry, you trained me well. You threw so much crap at me over the years that anything that gets thrown at me now seems like it's second rate, so I don't worry about it. Well, Dr. Fauci, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, to reminisce about Larry Kramer. It's been wonderful talking with you. Same here, Amy. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. It's been good having you with us. Tanzina Vega is back on Monday from her maternity leave. I'll be chatting with her at some point next week as well. Tune in for all of that. Now a quick shout out to the team. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator coming into the studio in New York every day for us, along with Vince Fairchild, who directed the show. Please give them a big round of applause. They're coming in so the rest of us can stay home. Jay Cowett is our editor. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Our associate producer is Patricia Jacob. And our senior producer is Amber Hall. Lee Hill is our executive producer. If you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast anywhere you get your audio and leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.